us. I have to say I'm a little overwhelmed. I'm still trying to process everything after traveling through India for the last two weeks. And as I was uh, preparing this message, uh, I was traveling on a train from uh, Nainital, which is in northern India, to New Delhi. And I was trying to process all of these different things that we'd gone through in the past uh, few weeks. We were nearing the end of our trip. And when you get there, it's, it's really hard to put into words. Um, being an American there, we arrived in uh, the central city called Nagpur at a mission called Mission India, uh, started by a man named Saji Lukos. And he has a vision of training and raising up 100,000 workers for Jesus Christ. And, and he's in a place where they don't have a lot of the resources that we have. Uh, they don't have a lot of the training that we have. And his vision is, is strong. Um, and people were coming from all over to this pastor's conference. People were coming by train um, 18 hours, if not longer, by train, standing room only, just to come to this pastor's conference to be trained to hear from God. We showed up near the end of it, and it was like we were celebrities. It was the strangest and oddest experience I think I've ever had in my life. Because we walked around, and a lot of the students that were there and pastors, and many of them had cell phones, and they were all just taking our picture, and they would flock and just take our photo. And we felt very weird. Um, they, I couldn't figure out if it was just they hadn't seen white guys before. <laughs> that was kind of one of it. And th- then we mentioned that it wasn't just because we were white, it, because Scott was bald. <laughs> Maybe that was it. But it was the fact that two of us were traveling with a Ugandan, which made it even more weird. And traveling, they would, they would want to take our photo. And then at the conference itself, they would put us on the platform to help dedicate babies or ordain pastors. And then at the end of the conference, we, we always felt strange because they would serve us no matter what we did. They were at our beck and call all the time. We, we came to serve, not be served. And then suddenly, at the end of the conference, we're, we're being flocked by pastors who just want to touch our hand or just be hugged, and at first it was just one or two, and then it drifted into 15 or 20, and then 30, and then 40, and people are in line just wanting to touch you, and I can't explain what that's like, and, and you hear their stories of what they've gone through, and you're like, who, are, who am I? Who, who am I? We went to one church and it literally was uh, just this one freestanding building. It was all concrete. There's barely any lights in it. There's no seats. We sit on mats. And it's, it's just away from everything else. And the pastor was relating the story that I shared with you last week of a woman who had come from the highest caste in uh, Hinduism, a Brahmin. And she had been suffering from an illness, and she came to the pastor for healing. And he prayed for her, and she was healed. So she decides to become a Christian. She starts coming to church, and her husband is angry. And he shows up in the service and stands by the pastor and just stares at him and starts accusing the pastor of witchcraft. And he's angry at his wife for her coming to church, so he says, I don't want you to go anymore, and she continues to go. So he takes a spade, a shovel, and he breaks both of her legs. So she couldn't get out of bed. And I'm hearing the stories of faith. And I say, who am I? I've not been through that. And yet you're honoring us. I mean, many of them have been beaten by family members just because they'd become a Christian. 
And I, I stop and I go, who am I? I? I don't even know how to put this into words. And I, I, I was talking with an evangelist, uh, a man that was there. He was an American. He was from Memphis, Tennessee. He'd been on staff at Adrian Rogers Church. And he was relating a story. He had been someplace with Francis Chan. And he, and he was talking about just how different it was. And Chan said, it's so different. He goes, many, he was in Thailand, I believe. And, and Chan said that the Thai students asked me what the church was like in America. And he said, I was ashamed to answer. He said, well, you can go to any church of your choice. It doesn't have to be the one closest to you. You can go to anyone and you have to have a good youth program and a good worship. And if it doesn't have that, you can go someplace else. Or, and, I mean, and then you don't even have to go. Or you've got something else that's more important. You go to that. And the people just were floored. And I stopped and I was like, Lord, what's wrong with us? We have so many resources. We've been so blessed in our country. We've been given so much. We don't realize how good we have it. I mean, for one thing, it was a culture shock for me to be in India, but it was even more of a culture shock to be not only in India, but to be traveling with an African. Because here are things that I had taken for granted, just like doing my laundry. He did do it in a bucket. I'd never done that before. And my African friend, he was 35, he's like, are you kidding? I've never touched a washing machine in my life. He didn't even know what it was. I mean, he was talking about traveling and, and, and just having to get to his family, and it took him several hours, and sometimes he wouldn't see them for days at a time because of his work. And even then, he wouldn't get paid that much, and yet it was all because of his dedication to Christ. And I kept asking myself, who am I? How can we be so blessed and yet not think about what God's requiring of us? I mean, seriously. God is asking so much us. He's entrusted so much to us. And as I meditated on this passage, God brought that even more out. I mean, it's so different to think about the first question you wake up in the morning, do I go to church today or do I, do I stay home? I mean, we, we, we think of that. We have other things that we can go to and we have. But it's so different for us to go, oh, I can stay home or I can go to this or that event or this and that. And for them, they get up and they go, do I, do I stay home or do I go to church and be beat by my husband? Or I could get killed? Or have the police raid our church meeting? I mean, last week when I called you, I'd been a little ill. I had a fever, and I didn't get to make it to the meeting that night. And Scott Kapp and uh, Mugasha went to a service where the police raided. They came in. And uh, they wanted to know why we were there and what we were doing. And they demanded our passports. And they finally, they, after an hour, they finally allowed let it, let our guys leave. And the reason was is because there had been violence that had broken out through some British had come in there and, and caused some agitation among the Hindu extremists. And there had been, I mean, literally fights. And I, and I heard more stories. I heard different stories. I heard one story of a couple, and it was a sweet story, where a couple took their two young toddlers, and they traveled all day, uh, three-day train ride. And then they, they got to, uh, they had to take another hour by motorcycle till they get to the location. And then the the missionary relates a story of how his, his little four-year-old saying, Jesus loves me, and how his wife got to lead a hundred women that were all gathered around a lantern in a dark one-room space on mats and telling him about Jesus. I mean, that was a great story. But yet, that same missionary couple, had a, there was another story that they related where they said in a nearby state, a man had taken his two sons to go hear about Jesus, or to show, share Jesus. And they slept in their car the night before they were to minister, and the Hindu extremists found out about it, surrounded the car, lit it on fire, and then refused to let them out. 
It's a different world that we live in. It's really different. I think, then I ask myself, God, who are we that you would bless us so much? How, how is it that we are blessed with so many resources and we are blessed with so many freedoms and we're blessed with so many different things? What do you want us to do with that? And I, I didn't know what even to title this message and, the, and I, I meditated in that casting crown song. Who am I? Who am I? The Lord of all the earth. I mean, would, he, would, would save us, would do that for us. And then as I read this passage, I was reminded again, who are we? That we should be recipients of not only this great salvation, but to be entrusted with such a task and such resources and such freedoms. What are we doing with it? What are we doing? I think Peter had a similar thought because he he was talking to the church that was scattered all over and they were suffering, but at the same time, they would take their salvation for granted. And he says, you're exiles, you're exiled from heaven, but don't think that you're just getting a free pass. That you need to conduct yourself with fear. The idea is even reverence. Knowing that he's God and you're not. He is in heaven, you are on, you are on earth. And as it says in Ecclesiastes, therefore let your words be few. Realize who it is you're talking to. We have become so flippant in how we approach God. We don't realize that. I mean, we, we, it's just about God, and we just talk about Him, and we throw His name around. We don't consider the reverence aspect of things. I mean, even when I was there, I, the first thing that I noticed at the pastor's conference was this. Every man, right before he'd walk up to the platform, he'd do this. He would take his shoes off because he understood that he was stepping on holy ground. The idea of reverence that we've lost. We've lost the idea of wonder, the mystery and the power of God, and that God has put us in a place for a reason. He has blessed us for a purpose. He's caused us to be born at this moment in time in the context that we're born in, not just that we might selfishly take in, but that we might give back. We might be faithful with our resources and all that God has given us. And I think that we need to ask ourselves the question again, who are we that God would bless us? And we need to think about God anew and look at Peter's words as the Holy Spirit enlivened them and made them alive to speak to us, to cut through the, the halls of time, to echo down to us today, to speak to us in our situations, in the, in the struggles and the pains that we are dealing with, and the stresses and the environment that we have, to speak to us. To wake us up out of our lethargy. To share his truth with a lost world. I mean, we think sometimes we have, a, we have difficulties here in the United States of America, but we haven't known difficulty. Not like that. We just haven't. So today, I hope, I want us to look at this passage together as we look at First Peter. Because we have to ask ourselves the question, who are we that we should be so blessed by God? We are so undeserving. We are so undeserving of the great, this great salvation. We don't deserve it. Just as I, I wasn't deserving of all of the, the, the things that they kept giving to us. They kept feeding us. and They wouldn't even let us put food on our plate. I mean, we would go into homes where they would give us the very best that they had, even if it meant that they didn't have anything. And we're like, no, no, we have enough. We're okay. But they wanted it to bless, to bless, to give. And we're like, we're not worthy of this. I mean, God is giving us this, and we're not worthy of it. We haven't done anything to deserve it. 
And here in America, sometimes we think that we're much better and much more deserving than we really are. I, I know in my head I would say that and I'd say, I know I'm not, but I feel it. There was the first time I experientially looked at it and I went, I'm not deserving of this honor. And we are not deserving of the honor that yet God has given unto us. So I want us to look at this passage. And I want us to see how we are to respond to this privileged relationship that we've been given. And how God wants us to live in light of it. My goal is not to make you feel guilty. My goal is to help empower us as the Spirit wants to empower us and to be sensitive to what He has for each one of us. We might forsake sin. We might take great steps of faith even at the risk of our own lives for Him. If they can do it, why can't we? I mean, we saw a man who was on the street in the northern city of Nanital where it's much more difficult to be a Christian. And he was a pastor. It's not illegal to be a Christian, but it is illegal in some places to proselytize, to make disciples or convert. He was standing out in front of this, uh, in this marketplace, and he had all Gideon Bibles. He was giving them away. And we talked to him, and, and he said, you know, they said, is it, gonna be, is it difficult for you? He said, yes, but I'm willing to pay that price. I'm willing to die. He was dead serious. And here he was, standing in front of him. He says, I'm willing to do it just to make Jesus known. Are we willing to? Are we willing to pay that price to make Jesus known to the nations, to our families, to the world? I'm asking myself that very question. Am I willing to pay that price? So Peter is speaking to us and showing us how we are to respond to that. But before we get into the sermon time, I want us to pray and ask God's blessing on our time together. Let's stop for a moment. Holy God, Who are we that we can even address you? Who are we to even speak your name on our lips? Who are we to even come into your house and sing your praises? And yet, because of Jesus Christ, we can. He alone is worthy. And through him, we are children of God. And as children, we come into your house boldly and we pray that you touch us by your spirit. We pray, Lord, that you remove any of the obstacles that are keep us from hearing you. Speak to us. We long for you. We hunger for you. Awaken us to our first love again. Help us to really see you, to know you, Lord, we struggle with so many things. But Lord, we know that your burden is light. Lord, help us to, to take, cast all of our burdens upon you. To take up your cross, to die to ourselves daily. And to live the new life that we have in you. And may we do so by your spirit. Lord, you have blessed us. That's obvious. The fact that we're here today is, is the sure sign of it. But Lord, please, let us not become too comfortable or removed, but help us to be awakened to the purpose and plan that you have for us. And may we not just sit here taking in, but may we go forth changed to give out. So Lord, speak to us by your Spirit, through your Word. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Let's look at our passage and break this down. The wording starts in verse 17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially. You know, the other translations, as I look through this, they uh, don't have if. It's actually the word since. It's a better translation. And the idea is, and since you call on him as father. In other words, we can call on him as father because we have come to believe in his son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in our lives. Which means that we've been granted a privileged relationship with God. God has granted us something that we did not deserve. And because of this privileged relationship, we we have a privileged relationship with the judge of the world. The judge of the world. I mean, think about that. The very judge, the creator of all that is, was, and ever will be, the one who gave and fashioned your life, that helped you have the ability to understand, to know, to work, to do, that God calls you to himself and calls you his child. He has given you a privileged relationship. And because of this privileged relationship, we are to conduct ourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Now, the word fear is in phobi, in phobi where we get the name, where we get our word phobia. Now, the, the noun phobos and the verb phobi can be either mean fear or fright in the negative sense, or in the positive sense, it can mean awe and reverence as a response to, to God. I think that awe and reverence is what God has in mind for us here. See, what Peter wants us to know is that it is necessary that we be responding to our privileged relationship reverently. Responding to our privileged relationship with God reverently. Don't just take up God's word flippantly on your lips or his name. Or even his Bible. I mean, we do that with our Bibles all the time. We toss them around. We don't realize the treasure that we have available to us that we have this true God who calls us to Himself. He's given us this privileged relationship, and we didn't deserve it. I mean, even as we were in Delhi, Scott Cap and I were talking just about the immense poverty. I mean, there's a thousand slums in Delhi. We were harassed by small children who had nothing. They were just wanting food. And they're all over, people sleeping on mats. I mean, we were also privileged to go to mercy homes and uh, interact with orphans. And you're seeing these orphans just sleep on mats. And how parents, like one mother, she had uh, three children and her husband died. And she got married to another man and he didn't want those children, so she just left them. Just left them. And these children are here sleeping on these mats and we're hugging them and, and giving them kisses. And you can tell they haven't been bathed and there's no other clothes for them. And they have nothing. And this is all over. I mean, here we have so many state programs, we can't even think about it. And, and you see it everywhere you go. I mean, there was a, the one couple that we stayed with, he ran the orphanage there, or a woman showed up with her three-day-old baby, and she goes, I don't want her. I can't afford another girl. Just gave her, like that. Just gave her. I mean, God has blessed us. And what are we supposed to do with it? I mean, we're not, we could have been born there. Why did God have us be born here and now? You ever ask yourself that? Why isn't that us? Why would you bless us so much with so many things that we can choose where we want to eat after service and how much we eat and where we go and where we drive and all these things that we go through? 
Interestingly enough, just because God is our dad doesn't mean that we're going to get by with anything. A lifetime of obedience doesn't excuse one hour of disobedience. God has given us something far greater than we can imagine in the salvation that we have received. And what are we doing with it? How are we treating it? How is our life reflecting it? How is your life in light of it? Are you taking advantage of it, vainly believing that it's all going to work out since you have the faith fire insurance policy? Are you one of those Christians that just say, I believe, and your life doesn't reflect it in any way, shape, or form? Well, Peter wants us to understand that we are going to be judged, each of us. Each of us is going to be judged according to what we have done, so we must consider and change our way. Here, look at your text again. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. I want us to go back to verse 17. Call on him who judges impartially. Now, it's interesting here. The word judges is in the present tense, which means that Peter is not saying that God will judge each individual, but that he is judging you now. What is he saying about your life? What's he saying about our church? It's in the present tense. It's literally one who judges, a participle. What does that mean? It means, it is to mean that our judgment is both present and future. There is a sense in Scripture that believers will be judged in this life and in the next, but the judgment of the wicked will come largely in the future. Now, I want us to see several passages that bring this out. First one is 1 Corinthians eleven thirty-one through 32. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. The idea is God is judging us and bringing that conviction of sin in our life right now. So he can discipline us. So we we may not be condemned later. God is bringing us back into relationship with him. Here's another verse I'd like us to look at. Hebrews 10, 30 through 31. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It conveys the same idea. Believers are being judged now as well. Here's another one for you. 1 Peter 4, 5 through 6. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. This is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. And here's another one, 1 Peter 4, 17 through 18. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, we're going to be judged. We don't like to talk about God as judge, but God is judge. He's going to judge us according to what we have done. God is a God of love and a God of mercy, but He's also a judge. And He's going to judge impartially. And even the word impartially literally means without reference to face. He doesn't care about who you are. He's going to judge. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? The righteous are scarcely saved. This is what Jesus was talking about when he said, broad is the pathway to destruction. 
And narrow is the pathway that leads to eternal life. And few find it. Not many, few. Why? Because God lays down the gauntlet of discipleship that he wants the entirety of your life. Every part of it. There's not just sliding in to to eternity. We only come by the righteousness of Jesus Christ, but that righteousness of Christ is to be transformative in our life. It is an an outflow of what our relationship with God is to other people. That God calls us to suffer by sharing in His suffering, which means by making His name known. The next passage that we have is 2 Peter 2.9. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. See, it's this understanding of all being presently. And then one more, 2 Peter 3.7. By the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction for the ungodly. More of that for the ungodly is coming at the end of time. Now, undoubtedly, you've heard about two judgments within Scripture. You have the Bama throne of judgment, which is a reward judgment. Some is called the, the family trial in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. And then the great white throne of judgment in Revelation 20, 11 through 15. And I want us to see that one real quick here. Revelation 20, verse 11 through 15. You have that one up here for me? Is that one next? Okay. We'll come back to that one then. I want us to see, though, the great white throne of judgment in just a moment. But I want to explain that I believe that the two are an actually one. All Christians will appear before the eternal judgment seat of Christ to receive what is due to them for the deeds that they have done in their earthly life. It is debated among scholars, however, whether the aim of this judgment is to determine the measure of reward that the Christian will receive in the age to come, and reward is given. Jesus talks about it a great deal in the Sermon on the Mount. Or whether the aim is to provide demonstrative evidence regarding who is lost and who is saved. Because the context in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, Paul's statement refers back to both the believer's hope for the resurrection and to the reward of glory beyond all comparison it would seem that both aims are in view. Both of those aims are in view with judgment. Thus, with regard to the first case, many interpreters hold that the believer's deeds will provide public evidence to indicate the measure of rewards that the believer will receive corresponding to the believer's obedience of faith, acts of service, love, good deeds, righteousness, etc. In the second case, like I mentioned before, which is whether the aim is to provide demonstrative evidence regarding who is lost and who is saved. So you're at the judgment and that God is going to judge and he's going to reward believers in the presence of unbelievers and show the reality of the Christian's faith and then reward accordingly so that the wicked will see who truly are of God and who are not. While the wicked will receive just complete judgment of their wickedness and cast off to hell. See, some interpreters whole believe that believers' deeds will also provide that public evidence brought forth before the judgment seat of Christ to demonstrate the reality of one's faith, that it's public evidence. It's not the basis for salvation, but as a demonstration of the genuineness of one's faith. That's what we need to think about. So that this judgment that is occurring, you have the great white throne of judgment, and you have the judgment seat of Christ being one. But for the believer, you see the believer getting reward as the wicked look on 
And yet, the wicked are being judged and going off to hell because they receive no reward from God. So we are going to be judged by God. Now let's look back at our text. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways of in- you inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, look at 19, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, was bit, but was made manifest in the last time for your sake. Now, in considering this salva- salvation, we need to stop and think about how amazing it is. And we can see that God planned this salvation since when? Since the foundation or God, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. See, Peter is telling us that Christ prov- was provided for us, but the actual thing was planned before the foundation of the world. See, the word foreknown means more than just foreknown. Because to foreknow something means that it's going to happen, which means it's already been decreed. So it's already been ordained. So God has foreordained this. God foreordained Christ to be slain before the foundation of the world, before there was light, stars, plant life, animals, humans. God ordained it. I remember talking with a man. I I was in Egypt in 2006, and I was talking with a man who subscribed to what's called liberation theology. And he said, I believe that the garden was a complete mistake and the cross was just making up a mistake that God had made in the garden. I'm like, well, before I tread on your heretical ground, let me say that God had this plan since the foundation of the world and this was not a mistake because God doesn't make mistakes. Because if he made mistakes, then he's not God. He's not worthy of my worship. See, do we understand that, that our salvation was begun so long ago? I mean, This salvation was because a careful plan was made. That's letter A under number one in your notes. There was a careful plan that God had made that he had planned meticulously. And even after the fall in the garden, he'd already had what was going to happen. He had to happen before that because he knew that man would fall. He had in Genesis 3.15 declared that there would be one that would come from Eve, that would be her descendant, that would crush the serpent's head, and that the serpent would strike his heel. And then he gives another promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, 15, 17, and 22. That he says from him the whole, the whole world would be blessed. And that promise goes from Abraham and passes to his son Isaac. And then it goes from Isaac to his son Jacob. And from Jacob to the fourth son, which was Judah. And then it goes down into the line, and then comes to King David. And there were times it looks like the plan was all going to go out. Where it came down to one person, like 2 Chronicles 22.10, where it came down to one small boy. But God preserved him. God preserved that plan. That no matter how Satan had come against it, God was bringing that plan to fruition. And he made that plan for whose sake? Yours. That he planned for the, since the foundation of the world. To, to place his mercy upon you through Jesus Christ. It was for your sake that it was to happen. See, God used all of these men, all of these people to bring forth the Son, the Savior, to save the world. He was the one born of a virgin, born at the fullness of time. He was the one that was born to die. He was the one who was going to ransom our souls. And it says that he gave us a precious price. 
Now, it's interesting that he ransomed us. The word ransom is the same word to buy back a slave. That's what the word is used. It would be buying back a slave, and it was very costly. Silver and gold were used as money to set slaves free, and the price of a slave in the Roman Empire ran from 700,000 to 200 cesareti, which is a certain coinage. And a worker in Rome could earn three cesareti a day. And they're saying it could be up to 700,000. But you were ransomed not with this money and hundreds of thousands of dollars, but with the precious, and the word there is very costly, very fine, precious, valuable. And that is the precious blood of Christ that came for you, that God gave for you. The precious blood of Jesus Christ was for you. It was a very costly thing to get a slave's freedom. But the price paid for us was much more costly. It was much more costly price that was paid. So we see there was a careful plan that was made, but then there was a costly price that was paid. That he paid the price to ransom you with Jesus Christ. God gave his son, who was like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Peter is deliberately using Exodus language here. Speaking of the Lamb of God, just as they were coming out of the prom- or coming out of slavery in Egypt, and before that they had to have the Lamb's blood over the doorway. See, as he is equating the Lamb with the Lamb of the Exodus. The Lamb had to be a perfect Lamb, a year old without any blemish. If there was any blemish, the Lamb wasn't accepted. Jesus was without blemish or spot. He was the very precious Lamb of God, the only unique Son of God, the greatest man to have ever lived. He was the one from whom was set apart since the foundation of the world. I think of the book of Revelation when the scrolls are being opened in Revelation 5. Now I want you to see it. Revelation 5, 1 through 10. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. No one! No one ever born! Not Alexander the Great, not Julius Caesar, not Albert Einstein, none of the great inventors or thinkers or generals or military leaders or great poets or orators or athletes. None of them are worthy. None of them will ever be worthy. There was only one. One for all time. Out of the billions of people that were ever born, only one proved worthy. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is conquered so he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures among the elders, I saw a lamb standing with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign in all the earth earth. Wow. Only he is worthy. Only he could pay that price. Only he was qualified. In 2008, I was serving as a worship leader at Chain of Lakes Community Bible Church in Lake Villa. 
And during the second service, uh, there were three services. In the second service, all the people started to leave. I had just stepped out, and I said, what's wrong? And they said, man just had a heart attack in the middle of the service. This very large man, and he had passed out, and, and he, they, he was going to die. And by God's grace, there was an EMT in that service. He normally came in the second and third service, and that day he was in the second service. And he went and grabbed the defibrillator, and he brought that man back, and he saved him. Now, it's amazing to me, no one else in that room, there was no other medical personnel at that room that was qualified to do what he did. Only one was found worthy at that time to bring life to him. Only one. Now, just think. We were lying there dead. No one could resuscitate our soul except the divine Son of God. He was the only one worthy, the only one qualified to breathe His life into us. That's an amazing picture. No one else was worthy. Not Genghis Khan, George Washington, Napoleon, or Lincoln. Only one, Jesus. He was the one that was worthy. God's power was displayed uniquely through him. See, we've seen that a careful plan was made and a costly price was paid, but we also see there is a conquering power displayed. Conquering power displayed. Look at verse 21. Who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead. Without the resurrection, we have nothing. That needs to be a core part of your preaching and your sharing the gospel with other people. We see that brought out time and time again. If we just talk about the death of Christ without the resurrection of Christ, then we're not talking about anything. We're talking about a good man who died a tragic death. But his death is vindicated through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. That was the content of Paul's preaching in the book of Acts. That even the philosophers began to laugh at him because he kept talking about the resurrection of the dead. That there will be a resurrection, a greater resurrection, of which Christ's resurrection is a foretaste that which we can enter into. And he's the only man to raise from the dead. Everybody else had someone that ever raised from the dead in Scripture. Someone else raised them from the dead. And they all died. But see, Christ is the one who died and rose again to go into heaven to be alive forevermore. But he's not dead, but he is alive. God, the Father, raised God the Son from the dead. By his death and resurrection, he purchased us. And now a chosen people are saved. The chosen people are saved. So we saw a careful plan was made, a costly price was paid, a conquering power was displayed, and a chosen people now are saved. That God has chosen us before the foundation of the world to be recipients. See, look at verse 21. Who through him are believers in God. We are now believers in God. We are chosen in him. And then it says, so our faith and our hope are in God. Now, notice before that it says that we were ransomed from the futile ways from our forefathers. The word ransomed is a, an aorist indicative passive, which means to release, to procure a lease by a ransom, to deliver by the payment of a price, to redeem. The passive voice there indicates that this happened to us, that we could not do it ourselves, and the aorist indicates that it was completed. We were ransomed, saved. The price was paid for our souls through Jesus Christ. And what a costly price it was. We are chosen through him. We're a chosen people, a holy nation. And we've been chosen for a reason. And that is to be his ambassadors so that we might experience the joy and sorrow he experiences as people turn to or turn from him. Now also notice what we've been saved from. Peter says that we are ransomed from the futile ways and we inherited from our forefathers. Now the word futile means vain, vanity, useless. The idea is that which lacks reality. Peter describes the former way of life that we had before we were saved. And it was useless, possibly even idolatrous. 
idolatrous. And, it, and the word for ways is referring to the entire manner of life by which we conducted and lived. It is the life handed down or passed down to us from our forefathers, something we inherited. Jesus saved us from something so that we might do something. And there are many Christians in this room are, are Christians simply because of their parents. And, that's, and, and that they were taught about Christ through their parents. And that's wonderful. That is wonderful. And many of us have inherited a great deal of godly heritage from our parents and grandparents. But there are other of us that inherited other things from our parents and grandparents that weren't so good. Many of us have inherited so many different traditions, possibly work habits, even maybe our political party. And there's some of them are good things, but there are also many bad things. And that is what Peter has in mind here. The bad things, how we used to order and prioritize our life, or the lifestyle or values of life, they don't come from God and His Word. The kind of living is living, futile, useless. Now, what's Peter trying to tell us here? He's trying to say this. He wants us to know that if we are saved at such a high price, then we can't continue our old way of life. In fact, he wants us to be leaving behind our past way of life confidently. He wants us to be leaving behind our past way of life confidently. We can't keep our old life of sin. We can't hold on to it. We have to leave it behind. See, think of the woman caught in the act of adultery. In John chapter 8, she was brought to Jesus just having been caught in the act. Those who brought her to Jesus said, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? They did this to test him. They didn't really care about it. They wanted to find a reason to indict him, to accuse him. But Jesus does something completely amazing. He stoops down and writes on the ground. There's all this debate about what he wrote. And they continued to ask him. He stood up and he said, Let him who is without sin cast the first stone. We know the story that one by one they threw down their stones and walked away, beginning with the oldest and then down to the youngest. And finally, he stood up and said, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Excuse me. She said, No, Lord. No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. It's not that she'd never sin again. The idea is, is that she would leave her life of sin behind. See, that's what Jesus says to each one of us. He calls us to leave our past way of life behind. And I, as we were talking with different Hindus, uh, just debating and researching, I, I, I started hearing how Hindus would say to Christians so often, they'd say, I've been following this like my forefathers have for 40 centuries. How can you say to me that, that, that I am wrong and then they are wrong? This even precedes Jesus. How can you say that to me? This is very arrogant of you. What does Jesus say? Jesus says, follow me. That he ransomed us from the futile ways. And they were wrong, and our forefathers were wrong. But God decided to show his mercy upon us through Jesus Christ. We're to leave our lives of sin behind. I think of the story in Genesis chapter 19 of Lot and Lot's wife. See, if you remember the story, Abraham's nephew Lot had moved and started living off near Sodom the wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, he started off living near it, but come to Genesis 19, and he's moved into Sodom. He started, he started living in the middle of this wickedness. First he was just near it, and then it gradually brought him in. That's in Genesis 14. But God had decreed to destroy Sodom, and he promised Abraham, though, he wouldn't do it if there were ten righteous persons in the city, as Genesis 18 says. Of course, there weren't ten, and God decided to destroy it. 
But he wanted to remove Lot and his family before he did. So these two angels went and successfully grabbed Lot, his wife, and his two daughters, telling them to, to fly away to a nearby city to flee and not to look back in Genesis 19.17. And we know the story. What happened next? They were leaving as, as uh, had fire and salt brimstone started coming down upon the city. And what did Lot's wife look to do? What did she do? She looked back, right? And what happened to her? She turned to a pillar of salt. Now, the purpose of that story is, is that we don't look back to our life of sin. When God tells us to step out and be separate, to leave that life of sin behind, He is saying, leave it behind. Don't go back. Because if you do, it's going to be to your destruction. You leave it behind. When God calls you to flee, you are saved just though by fire. Don't go back. The price is too costly for you to do that. We're to leave our life of sin behind. Now, what does it mean to leave our life of sin? According to Peter, it involves leaving behind the traditions we were taught. Traditions we were taught. See, it doesn't matter what the traditions were. We're all called to leave it behind, whether you're Hindu, Muslim, Christian. I don't care. Because you, be, you could be a Christian just in name only and not in practice, and you could even be a, a person who might be in church and think you're Christian and you're really not. You could have inherited racism from your parents. You could have inherited anything from your parents, and you still think you're saved. Is the reality of Christ in your life? And Jesus calls us to leave all of our sin behind to follow him. That means leaving the traditions we were taught, no matter what the price would be. Just as I shared with you, the Brahmin woman, she was leaving that behind, even if it meant suffering. We're also to be leaving behind the things in which we trusted. The things in which we trusted. No matter what it was, we're to give it up. Consider the book of Acts chapter 19, verse 19. Many people got saved from a witchcraft background. And what did they do? I love this passage. Let's bring this up here. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought the books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So they brought it together and they said, we're not going back. We're burning it. We're giving it up at the altar. We're laying it out before the Lord. What do you need to give up? What is the idol that is keeping you from walking with Jesus? What is it? What are you holding on to? God is calling us to leave behind those traditions we were taught and the other things in which we trusted, the idols in our life, to lay them out for Jesus, to give them up for him, to give up even our what I like to call our Isaacs, just as Abraham was called to give up the most precious possession he had, which was his son. We're to give up our most prized possessions for the Lord. Knowing that we have a present and future judgment, how are we to live? Let's look at verse 20 through 21. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake. Now, was made manifest, which is an aorist passive participle, which means to make clear, to make plain, to manifest. See, God the Father made God the Son, our Lord Jesus, to be manifested and seen in the last times. When Jesus came, it was kicking off the last times. We are in the last times. This is the last times. I don't know how long that will be, but I know that we're in that period of time now. We are in the last times. His birth, death, and resurrection kicked off the end times, and it was for a point. It was for your sake, which literally means because of you, for your sake. That's why God did it, for you. 
God made the Son of God manifest for us in these last times. And it is through him that we are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Notice the words, are believers. We are current believers. God gave him glory so that we have a current faith and hope in God. In other words, we have a faith and a hope in the future. A faith that is what is to come and a hope that is what is ultimate to come. Which means that we are to be living in the present future, hopefully. We're to be living in the present and future, hopefully. Hopefully. And that means three things. That involves living in thankfulness. I know we just had Thanksgiving. Did you give thanks truly for what God has given unto you? I was, uh, our Indian friends were asking us, they said, so there's a holiday in your country where everybody comes and gives thanks? That's wonderful. I said, yeah, it is. I didn't even think of that. Do people thank God? I'm like, well, not everybody thanks God. But hopefully we thank God for what he has given to us. We're to be responding in thankfulness. Are you thankful for your salvation? When's the last time you asked God and you thanked him for what he's given to you? Seriously. When's the last time you thanked God? Say, God, thank you for saving me, even though I didn't deserve it. When was the last time that you thanked God? For saving you. Are you responding in thankfulness? We're to live thankfully. We're also to be living in faithfulness. We have thankfulness and faithfulness. See, God has entrusted so much to our care. What are we doing with it? What are we doing with it? Are we being faithful with what God has given us? I keep thinking of all the resources and all the things that we have at our disposal. And I'm asking God now, Lord, please help us to be faithful stewards of everything you've entrusted to our care, no matter what it is. We're to be faithful. Do you think that we won't be judged for what God has given unto us? Everything that he's entrusted to us? We're to be thankful and faithful. And lastly, we're to also be fruitful. Look at verse 17. God judges according to each one's deeds. Each one's deeds. How's God going to judge your deeds? He does it without part. He's completely impartial. He's going to look at your life. What will he say? What will he say? With everything God has entrusted to us in this period of time, I can't help think of William Carey. As we were in India, we heard a lot about William Carey who helped bring the gospel to India. And he translated the scriptures into some 31 different languages. 31 different languages. That guy was faithful. He didn't have the modern resources we had. He didn't fly on a plane to get there. I mean, you're talking about a guy who went on a boat and knew that this is, I'm going to possibly die there. He was faithful with everything God entrusted to him. He taught himself these languages, by the way. No one taught him. He taught them to himself. What are we doing with what God has given to us? Are we going to be fruitful. See, we are who we are that God should use us. God has called us to himself to be recipients of his salvation. Not that we would waste it, but that we would use it. That we should be considering again who he is and asking God to return us to our first love, that we might do the deeds that we did at first. But many of us are so caught up in the day-to-day actions of our work and lives that we forget and we crowd God out. And the more that we crowd God out, the harder and harder it becomes to let him back in. The more that we continue to live with our neighbors and not tell them who Jesus is, the harder and harder it gets. 
For the longest time, I didn't know my neighbor's name. He told me for once, and I forgot it. So for the longest time, I'm like, hey. And we would engage in these conversations. Maybe you've done this. You've engaged in conversation, and then you're going through the entire conversation, and you have an entire thing built up, and I still don't know the man's name. And I feel like an idiot. The longer and longer it lasts, the worse and worse it gets. And it's the same way in sharing Christ. The more that we don't talk about Jesus, the harder it gets. That's why I think many of us like short-term mission trips, because we go in, we go out, we do it, and then we don't have to keep living our life the day-to-day to prove the reality of our walk with Jesus. That's the hard part. That's what God has called us to do, and we can't do it. By God's grace and God's spirit, every single person in this room, without exception, can do that. God has called you, and he's empowered you, and he's given up his spirit to be sharing his word with your neighbors, your family, and your friends. There's nothing that's going to keep you from it. There's no persecution. I mean, maybe there will be some persecution that you will receive, but you don't have the police showing up at your door. You don't have to worry about your family being pulled out of bed in the middle of the night. God has given you this freedom for a reason, and we don't use it. We don't use it. I pray that God would revive our hearts. I mean, who are we that he would call us? We are nothing. God took those who are nobodies, that we might believe in the one somebody, that we could truly become, we could truly reach everybody. He took nobodies, connected them with somebody, so we could reach everybody. That's what he's done. Let's do it. Nothing's keeping us from it. We can do it. Ask God to give you boldness. Give you courage at your workplace. With those that you're over or you're under. Whoever it is, with your employer, with your employees, at your school, with your classmates. In your gym class, gymnastics, dance class, baseball, basketball, football, wherever God has put you, be bold. Don't hesitate to tell people who Jesus is and what he has done. Be different for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, as we transition into this communion time to remember what it is that you have done for us, may we always be reminded that we are nothing in and of ourselves. But Lord, for whatever reason, you decided since the foundation of the world to ransom us from our futile ways through giving the Son of God that we might, we might tell other people about who you are. Lord, help us to have deeds in proportion to the relationship that we have with you. Lord, let our light shine. Let us truly be salt. Return us to our first love. Lord, let us not just get emotional, but help us to be continually on fire before you and continually revive our hearts as we go to your word and we ask your word to perform that spiritual surgery to awaken us and remove the unbelief that is creeping up all around us. And Lord, may your name receive glory through us. May you grow us. May you help us to reach the nations, whether it's India or Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia or Indonesia or Papua New Guinea or Madagascar or South America or Uruguay, Paraguay, wherever it may be. Maybe it's just next door. Maybe it's down the street. Maybe it's at Horner's or Target or at, at, at Freeman or at West or Wabonzi or wherever it is, Lord. Let us give your name glory. And Lord, please use us. Use us, Lord, and help us to step into the freedom and use the resources and the freedom that you've given us to make your name known. And may you receive glory because of it. May you do such a work in our church that all who hear will stop and give your name glory. And may your spirit be continually evident here to touch us, mold us, and draw us near to yourself. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.